Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important, and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to today's show. Today we're having a chat with Elaine Bedstead. She's the Chief Executive of Zoo South Australia, which operates both Adelaide and Monato Zoo. Prior to this appointment, she held the position of Chief Exec for TAFE South Australia, and preceding this held senior roles in both state and local government. Elaine's qualifications include an MBA and Masters in Public Policy and Management, and also holds qualifications in Accounting and Finance. And as you'll soon pick up, Elaine is living her purpose, a true love and passion for animals. It's great to be able to connect with leaders who are so passionate about the space they are leading and working in. Luckily, Elaine is here in Melbourne for the Telstra Business Awards and we wish her all the best in as she's a finalist in the Purpose and Social Enterprise category. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Elaine Benstead or she prefers EB. So, Elaine Benstead, welcome to The Mentor List. Thank you so much, David. But first of all, can I just say, everyone calls me EB. EB. Okay. <laughs> welcome to The Mentor List, EB. Thank you. So, first question is just if you could share with the listeners a little bit about your story. Okay, yeah, because people often ask how I went from being the head of TAFE to running zoos. It's a slightly unusual career yep. move. So, I, I tend to tell the story of back when I was a kid. I grew up always wanting to be a vet. That was the only thing I ever wanted to be. But I faint when I see blood. Oh, wow. And I can't watch an injection being given even on TV. So I knew that, but I always thought I'd grow out of it. And then I think it was year 12, the realisation hit that I hadn't grown out of it. And so I couldn't really be a vet. It's not a good career trait if you faint every time you see blood. So I went to uni doing a science degree because I picked all my subjects based around being a vet. And then I dropped out because I didn't actually want to be a scientist and I had Zero idea of what I wanted to do. So in those days, it was really easy to get a job. So I rode off to a few different places and I ended up working in a bank. And the plan was that that was going to take six months while I worked out what I was actually going to do and I was going to go back to uni and and finish my degree. I ended up spending 17 years in banking and finance. So I never quite got back to uni in a full-time capacity. I did all my other study part-time. So I did all the traditional sort of banky things and was a bank manager for a short period. But then I got more into project management, marketing, and then human resources, particularly in training. And then I had a a short stint in local government and then I joined state government in South Australia. Uh, So most of my um, banking stuff was in Adelaide, uh, a bit of a stint in Melbourne. Uh, And then we returned to Adelaide. That stage we had a, a young daughter. It was just easier with family support. And... I ended up having about 12 years in the state government. With the last seven, I had responsibilities for TAFE. And I did a yep. few other studies through that period. So when I wanted to leave the banking sector, and I'd got quite well known in, in the bank, was going to move into local government and so made the decision and did an MBA just to show that I had some transferable skills and government was yep. really focused on postgraduate qualifications which the Mm -hmm. bank at that stage wasn't so much so I did my MBA and then I did a master's in public policy thinking I should really have a better understanding of how government sets policy and it was a really good master's but 
I couldn't actually see that that's how politicians set public policy, but I know the theory of how they should set public so policy. So this is full-time work and... Full-time work and part-time study. Wow, okay. And, yeah, quite a number of... I do like a deadline, so quite a number of assignments that were yep. being done at 3 in the morning. Wow. At the day before they were due. So it was, yeah, a fairly busy life. Yep. And so, I mean, that's, so that's an MBA and a Master's. Is, is that like a fair few years of commitment? Yeah, I can't remember now, David. The okay. MBA, I think, was about four years part-time. Yep. The Master's in Public Policy was much shorter because I got a lot of credit for the subjects that I had done in the, the MBA. So yep. I think that was, was only 12 months part-time. And then at one stage I did play with the idea of doing the PhD and then decided that really, you know, sleep was a fairly valuable <laughs> commodity that I wasn't getting a lot of. And so I had the last seven years in state government, I was responsible for TAFE as well as the employment program, so the traineeship and apprenticeship system in, in South Australia. And it, look, that was a fabulous role, and TAFE is a, a really fabulous organisation. It was a very challenging role time-wise. It became quite political. Uh, we were going through a lot of policy changes, taking TAFE from being I guess an entity that received most of its money directly from government to one that was working in a much more open, competitive market right. and we were changing legislation to set TAFE up as a, a statutory authority. And, you know, you get so immersed in it and you, you, you're doing a lot of what I now look back on and say might be described as busy work. It was doing political briefings, just managing yep. stuff, okay. the busy stuff. Of, and TAFE was a large organisation. Um, we were spread across the state, so with about 50 campuses. So if I visited each campus once a week, they'd only see me every year. Wow. So with yep. that many staff spread over that bigger distance, yep. we got to use video conferencing a lot. That's how we communicated. Yep. And then literally I saw the job of Chief Executive of the zoo advertised in the paper. And it was just like this little light bulb went off that said, oh, that would just be a fabulous job. And the zoo had been in really serious financial trouble. It wasn't very serious financial trouble. So everyone in South Australia knew that. It was in the newspapers quite regularly. Yeah. The previous chief executive had left. Uh, so there was it was in a difficult position. So I rang the recruiter who uh, I knew. I'm an animal lover, conservationist at heart, but I really know nothing at all about running a zoo. Yeah. Is it worth putting an application in? And he said, yeah, absolutely, because the, the zoo is 139 years old and has been doing fabulous animal work, and that bit of the zoo wasn't in trouble. But the business side, recognising that the zoo was a business, yep. was in serious trouble. So obviously the financials, but it was broader than the financials. So I applied and uh, ended up managing the, the two fabulous zoos in South Australia, and, and then I think within about two weeks I was on a plane to China we've got giant pandas, the only pandas in the southern hemisphere, and that was part of the contractual arrangements. Here I am, I know nothing at all about giant pandas. I've learnt an awful lot on that plane trip was just reading and reading and reading. And, yeah, five years later, um, people often say, you know, do you have any regrets in your career? And at the first time I went to answer that, up, it was, I wish I'd joined the zoo world so much earlier right. rather than waiting until I was almost 50. But the reality is I couldn't have done the job and do it well without the things that I learned mm. along the way, uh, both in the private sector and in, and in government. So I think for me the, the timing was right, but I have said I'm never going anywhere else now. As long as the board will have me, this is where I am right. when I retire because it's just a fabulous job. And what, what, what makes you love the job so much? 
a couple of things. The fact that we are really making a difference or can, yeah. I mean, good zoos can make a real difference. You know, we're losing species to extinction at an unprecedented rate. You know, there's been more than 100,000 species lost forever just mm. since I was born. And if you read some of the statistics of, of what might happen in the next few years, you know, the, the, the Living Planet Index estimates that we could lose two-thirds of the planet's wild animals by 2020. And that's a really scary and I want to see that change. And, and so this is a role that I'm leading an organisation that's got passionate, absolutely passionate, committed staff and volunteers who are all aiming to do that, and that's yeah. to save species. So for me it's, it's the pleasure of, of working in a fabulous environment. I mean, I do have the best office. In yeah. South Australia, because so, it's in the middle of the zoo. So, so I, I physically work, in the middle of so, the zoo. So physically yeah. in Minchin House, which is an old heritage building in the middle of Adelaide Zoo, and then I'll, I'll, we also have Monato, which is the largest open-range zoo in Australia. Wow. So they're two very unique ones. Uh, we call it our city oasis because it's really close to the sea, in the CBD, yep. but it's green and lush, and then you've got all the wonderful sounds of the animals. And then Monato's only an hour's drive, and... You could feel like you're in the middle of Africa. You know, it's, yep. it's 1,500 hectares. Uh, you see giraffes just running at 40 kilometres because they can and they've got the space. <laughs> so two very unique zoos and, and they offer very different experiences. So, yeah, it's a fabulous environment. I, I certainly draw on all all of the skills. It's, it's, it's a challenge, you know, certainly financially and you have a whole range of other challenges, managing risks, working with stakeholders, seeking sponsorship, always doing fundraising, you know, so there's... There's never a dull moment. Yeah. But you always feel that what you're doing is for a genuine reason and purpose and is adding value. Yep. There's none of that busy work. It is all genuine, meaningful work. And with a, a passionate group of staff and volunteers, there's three times as many volunteers as staff. So, yeah, there's a lot of thing, things to enjoy. And it's a fabulous community in Australia and New Zealand as well. I mean, I started... I had an awful lot to learn about just how zoos operate. I could pick up the phone at any time and talk to my counterparts in Victoria or New South Wales or WA or Queensland. So we don't, we're not in competition with each other. Right. So there's, there's a, a, a good network globally um, of people that you can call upon and, and discuss things with. Yeah. Is there like that collaboration effect that you get um, with the adventure parks where it's, do you have that in South Australia where you're collaborating with sort of other geographically Yeah, we, well, look, we, we link really closely with a lot of other um, tourism providers in particular. So trying to attract interstate or in, international tourists to South Australia, we don't have the marketing budget to do that by ourselves. Yeah. So we'll work with some of our partners to say, you know, put together a package deal with people who are interested in wildlife. They might want to spend a couple of days at Kangaroo Island, which is a fabulous place, then have a day at Adelaide Zoo, then go up to Monato. So it's working with others to try and put together a really exciting package that showcases what South Australia's got. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, so volunteer staff, so are they so three times as many volunteers? Is, does that make it harder to manage or so... Look, volunteers are, as I said, they are all passionate. Um, we've, we've calculated the number of volunteer hours that we get, and if we were paying a salary for those number of hours, it would add about $4 million of expense to our PNL, which we couldn't yep. do. So we really couldn't operate without them. And they, they run about 17 different programs, so all quite different. There's some who are doing tour hosting, mm. uh, 
take people on personalised tours of, of the zoos, but we also have groups that you know, build things, uh, make enrichment items for the animals. We've got groups that do weeding because at 1,500 hectares oh, there's wow. always a lot of maintenance <laughs> and weeding yeah. can be done. Planting, we've planted a couple of hundred thousand trees. So there, are, And then we've got a group of scientists who come in and do some of our biochemical analysis. We've got an amazing skilled group of volunteers. We... I, I take them really seriously. So, you know, once a month we have a volunteers meeting on Saturday. I'll always attend that and give them an update on, on what's happening mm. because I need to show that respect yeah. because that's what they're giving to us. But at the same time, we have to set standards. Our, our visitors need to get a certain level of customer service. We've got safety standards, et cetera, et cetera. So all of our volunteers go through a recruitment process. They go through interviews. Um, then they go through a very detailed training and induction session and then they go through an assessment before they are sort yep. of ticked off as a volunteer. Uh, we, we've got mandatory training, so on things like our values, both staff and volunteers will receive that training. So we, we do treat them as part of our workforce because they are, as I said, yeah. we couldn't deliver what we deliver without yeah. them. Yeah, and, and because it's a conservation charity, so... Mm-hmm. How does that work from a business model perspective? So we're incorporated under the Associations Act, and that's quite different to most of the other main zoos in Australia, which are run the entities of the state government, so they're owned by the state government. We're not, and that's just history. You know, yep. 139 years ago, somebody set up the what was then the Acclimatisation Society. Um, we, we do receive a funding deed, and we've got a funding grant from the state government, so that's about 22% of our revenue. The rest of our revenue we're responsible for ourselves, so that's yep. uh, through our uh, day admissions, through our memberships, through sponsorships, through retail, through running events, etc. cetera, uh, and then I report to a board. So legally we're owned by our members, yep. um, so it is quite a different governance structure to yep. um, many. Uh, we are a registered charity. We've we've got um, tax deductible uh, gift status. So, getting that message out to the public is important. And I think zoos have changed a lot. If you looked over even over the last twenty years, yes, we still have to offer an entertaining day. That's why people choose to come using their discretionary yep. income to have a day at the zoo. So it has to be fun. It has to be entertaining. We also want it to be educational. And at our core, we're a conservation organisation. So we always say that we need people to come, fall in love with the animals, then we can tell the story about how you can make a difference so yeah. that we don't have this, the level of extinctions that we're facing now. So we, we use the, a philosophy called love, not loss. So we focus on why you love the animals. What is it about them that's so special? What's so fabulous about them? Then what are some of the risks that they're facing in the world? And what can we do about it? What are we doing now? But what more can we do if we all work together? So, fantastic! Yeah. I can just tell, like I'm just sitting across. I can tell you, you're in your passionate area. <laughs> Get me started like, talking about this. Yeah. I could go for hours. <laughs> I could listen for for hours. And I, I guess when you're in, what are the people call it flow, or when you're in working in something that you're so passionate about? I mean. Yeah. It's probably, and now that you're getting sort of recognition externally, so there was recently in um, South Australia where you you were recognised as, was it, if I quote right, Businesswoman of the Year? Or? Uh, we had the Telstra Businesswoman Awards, so they hold, uh, and Telstra's been running them for a number of years, so at the, the South Australia level, I won the 
full-purpose sector, which is like the not-for-profit sector, Businesswoman of the Year in South Australia, and we've got the National Awards on tonight. Yes. And I've got to say, having met all of the recipients, there's, there's a number of categories. There's an entrepreneur category and a, a public sector and academia. That's just the most fabulous, talented group of people yep. from just such a diverse range of areas. It, it's mind-blowing. There's 44 of us that are in this category. And, uh, yeah, every one of them is, is just fabulous. So I don't care what happens tonight. It's, yep. I've, I think I'm, I've won anyway just yeah. by getting this far and, and meeting this group of people. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And, yeah, congratulations. I hope it goes well Thank tonight. You. And, um, yeah, look forward to hearing how, how that goes. Okay. Well, we, we were all happy too because a couple of weeks ago there was the Tourism Awards in South Australia and Adelaide Zoo won the, oh, the major good. tourist oh, well, attraction award. So we're in a bit of a, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, great year for you guys. Yeah, so I guess just another question was around is there any habits that have, that you could share that you think have contributed to your success? Look, I think if you enjoy what you do, you'll work really hard. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to put in effort uh, and if you enjoy it and you're passionate about it, then that hard work pays off. I've always tried to keep my focus on the end game, you know, that whole was it lose lose the battle but win the war. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can get so caught up in the moment you forget about the big picture. And so always keeping the objectives of what's important um, front of mind and sharing that with your team so that everybody's got that yeah. that shared focus. We use a thing at the zoo called positive reinforcement. So when we're training our animals, so our keepers uh, do a lot of uh, animal training, and that's primarily for health reasons so that we can do health checks without the need for anaesthetic. We use, most people, if they're training dogs, you've got a lead. Well, if you're training a chimpanzee, you don't have a lead and you're not in there with them. So you can't use physical cues if you're training a bird to do a free flight. Yeah. They can fly off. So the whole concept of, of positive reinforcement training is being really clear on the behaviour that you want from the animal. Try and set the environment so that they're going to be successful. Like you don't train your dog for the first time in a busy shopping centre or football over you do it in a yeah. nice quiet area. So, so be clear what you want, set the environment for success, and then as soon as there's success, there's a reward, and then you repeat. Yeah. And it's the same in working with staff and with volunteers is that positive reinforcement. What is it that you want them to be doing? Set the environment so they can be successful. Reward when they do it right. And if you use that methodology, I think it works incredibly well for, I guess, giving clarity for leaders about what behaviours you do want your staff to be exhibiting and, and making everybody really clear about that. Yeah. Because I think once those expectations are clear, most people come to work, they want to do the right thing. You just need to let people know what the right thing is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it sounds it sounds very clear and simple. Um, yeah. Actually, it's quite refreshing. <laughs> most things in life are simple, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just my next question was around advice. Was there advice you got or you wish you had have got that you think's helped also? I think being prepared to take chances if I think back on my career, you know, when I was in the banking sector, and, and in those days it was a very male-dominated environment, so certainly you know, I was one of the first female executives. And you've got to have a sense of humour when you're working that. I do remember my husband receiving an invitation to a wives' day because they'd just done a male merge and they didn't know how to deal with right. a male 
Uh, and so he got invited on a shopping day with a bunch of women, which he thought was fabulous. He had a great day. He got that. He got spoiled wrong. Um, so you need a sense of humour. I think, but in those days, you didn't apply for jobs within the bank. You were selected by personnel right. to go into something. And, you know, I, I think the, the, a couple of the roles I got thrown in the absolute deep end. If I'd looked at a job description and said, "Could I do that job?" Not a hope in hell. Mm. I could do little bits of it, maybe. Yeah. But somebody saw that I had the potential, and so threw me in. And I am a fairly competitive person. I'm a very competitive person. If I'm going to do something, I want to do it well. And so you learn an awful lot when you're in a new role. If you want to do it well. And so being prepared to take those chances and just grab and run with it, I yep. think we don't do enough of that with particularly young people in organisations now. So I think, yeah, it's, it, enjoy enjoy the job is number one yep. and have a passion for it, but be really prepared to go out there and, and try to do something that, that extends you and forces you to keep learning. So did you have the same amount of passion you know, when you're in the banks or like because it just seems like, you know, this is sort of the collision of your childhood desire to help animals and then you've gone and built yourself into this career, you know, you're able to actually run a role like in the zoo. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, look, I, no, I, look I, I've always been passionate about what I've done. Yep. There's never been a job that I did that I, I didn't enjoy. I think running TAFE, I was passionate because I could see just the value and the life changing, you know, going to some of those graduations. I always remember a couple in the APY lands and, and you seeing someone get a certificate to the first person ever in their whole family or a community to get a certificate and you just see the joy. And so I could get really passionate about that because it was life changing. But the zoo is closer to, I guess, my... I've still got that education element, which I've loved, and I had that. In some ways, that was a, a continuous thread because I was involved in training in the bank for for many, many years, and then obviously with TAFE. So that education element is yep. sort of been through. But the zoo is, yeah, as I said, I'm not yep. leaving. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like you will be if you keep getting all these awards. Uh, well, and <laughs> you don't want to overstate your welcome, though. But then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The only other advice that I always think of is that, that from that wonderful song is look after your knees because you'll miss them when they're gone. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the zoo world, having good knees would be really helpful. Yeah, oh, yeah. I just got down to see the smaller animals and I've got shocking knees. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good quote. Was that, was that the quote or was there another quote? That, uh, no, that, that I, I did have. I've got a quote that I, and I don't know where, I, where it came from, um, but I heard it a long time ago, which was leaders leave a legacy every day. And that there's no such thing as a sort of offhand comment or a throwaway line. Every interaction you have is important. So even if it's a, you know, a casual conversation while you're waiting to grab a cup of coffee with someone, if people listen to what you say, how you say it. Um, they watch your body language so they can pick up if you're feeling confident about something or if you're really worried about something. So I think it's, it is a... A privilege and an important thing when you're a leader that you have to show, the, I guess, that you respect that. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. And just the last question was around a book. If there's a book that you've you've read and you could recommend to the listeners, it was a book I read a long, long time ago called "Man's Search for Meaning" 
by um, Viktor Frankl, and it's it was written. He was in a concentration camp and, and lost most of the members of his family, and he was writing about. So it's, you know, it's a pretty torrid background, but he was writing about the fact that you can always choose how you respond. So even though he was being treated in an appalling manner, he could choose how he responded to the guards and, and the people who were mistreating and killing people. And you can't blame anybody else for how you choose to respond. It was a really powerful, mm -hmm. if you can make that determination in that sort of circumstance, that's a pretty powerful, I don't know if I could do that, but that whole sense of, you know, you can't blame, well, I had a, a bad childhood or, you know, I had a bad work colleague or I had, you know, the, the person in front of me was driving badly. So there's always something in the environment that you can use as a reason for your own behaviour. But the reality is our own behaviour is our own behaviour. So that ability to choose our own response to the stimulus of our environment, it was it, to me it was a, a really, really powerful book. And a really powerful message that has always stuck with me. Yeah, I don't absolutely. Know if I can quite do it to the extent that uh, the Victor did, but I'd like to think at least that the messages. Yeah, well, it's stuck kind of through. Come, comes through very clear. Yeah, we can always choose our response regardless how bad or great yep. the, the reaction is. So that, that ability to be able to take a deep breath and then think, okay, mm. uh, this person's done that. How am I going to respond? And I'm I'm solely responsible for that. Yep. So oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you very much for um, for coming in, and I, I, just the passion in the zoos is it's just amazing. Yeah, and you can get passionate about every form of creature, apart from I've got to say, apart from cockroaches, it's the one I can't quite warm to. But there must be a favourite. Is it's a favourite <laughs> in the zoo, or if you like, what's the big draw card? At oh, the, the big draw card at Adelaide Zoo is our giant pandas, Wongwongwongfuni, uh, because they are the only giant pandas in the Southern Hemisphere. So a lot of people travel just to see pandas. But having said that, we had a sloth uh, who unfortunately <laughs> died earlier this oh, year. Okay. She, was, she was the oldest sloth in the world, so wow. she had a pretty good innings. Uh, but people used to travel from interstate to see this see the sloth. So everybody has their own passion and yep. favourite. I, I got given advice when I first started that zoo directors aren't meant to share their favourite. Okay. Oh. I ignore that advice. Anyone who came into my office saw that I was, it was sort of covered in wombats. Right. <laughs> so everyone guessed that uh, I do have a bit of a passion for wombats. Fantastic. But I also, you know, you look at cheetahs and they're gorgeous. You look at rhinos, they're superb. There's so many. Every animal has its own, and every species has, it, has its own uniqueness about it. Um, mm. You can get fascinated by whether it be a reptile or bird, we work with all of them, um, and they all have they all have their own fans. Yeah, and they all have something that's really special about them. And again, yeah, I can. They're lucky to have you, you know, looking after. I guess the Adelaide, the South Australian zoo, zoos. Yeah, well, I said I've just been in Berlin for the World Zoo Association. Uh, so that's the directors who are members of the World Zoo Association. Current president is Jenny Bray, who's the chief executive of Zoos Victoria. Uh, she's just written a book, which is another fabulous book that I've just finished reading about ethics in zoos. Yeah. And Australia and New Zealand, I think, are really leading the way in, in good quality zoos. I mean, there's a lot of zoos around the world that are not at the standard that they should be, and they, they drag all of us down. But Australia and New Zealand has got some really high-caliber zoos, both with a focus on science and animal welfare, but also on the conservation work that they're doing. Mm. So, yeah, I think we can be pretty proud of it's really helped me coming into the industry new. I've got 
the absolute best partners yeah. in the region that I can call upon. So. Definitely. Mm. And, yeah, well, thank you for That's coming right. in today. It is a hot day here in Melbourne, surprisingly. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes. So we've turned the weather on for you, and good luck tonight at the Telstra Business oh, look, Awards. It's, it's, there's there's oh, fabulous fingers people. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, yeah, as you said, the 44 that have been listed in the national is yeah. at the national finals. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll be. Uh, yeah, I'll have my fingers crossed for you tonight. But thank uh, you. Just for the guys that are listening in, and they want to either visit the zoo or they want to find more about you or contact yeah. you. How would they go about that? Hey, we're visiting the zoo. Obviously, just visit the zoo's SA website. Yeah. Uh, but for me, the, the best contact is through LinkedIn. So that's the easy way to get in contact. Yeah, fantastic. But I would encourage people to come and visit. They're both fabulous places. Yeah. And I'll definitely put links to that up on thementalist.com.au. And, yeah, shout out to Malcolm Jackman for putting us in contact. I will. Thank you. Yeah, thank you again. And really appreciate you well, taking the time. No problems at all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Mental List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mental List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mental List.